Real Cinema Club. I'm James Azika. And my name is Andres Lorente. And every other week on the Two Real Cinema Club, we talk about two films, usually one older one and one new one, and we make some comparisons and then we talk ad nauseum about both of them. <laughs> um, and this time around, it's, it's disruptive technology. Uh, kind of, sort of. It's like it, we're, we're taking a, a ride on the roller coaster of business. I feel like a, a junior Elon Musk. <laughs> yes, kind of. We're disruptors now. Yeah. Um, so we are, we have watched uh, Blackberry, the new. I think it counts as a Canadian feature film yes. about the invention of the uh, the aforementioned Blackberry. We're comparing that to 2007's There Will Be Blood by Paul Thomas Anderson. So, um, yes, uh, a deep dive into the dangers of business. Before we go that far, um, we'll quickly do the socials, though, uh, which means uh, if, if, you, if you want to look at us on uh, Instagram, we are at Two Real Cinema Club. Uh, you can read the blog. Uh, if you go to tworealcinemaclub.com, you can comment on our YouTube channel or you can email us at tworealcinemaclub at gmail.com. Let us know what you think, ask us questions, or shop us into the SEC. And please tell your friends about us. Leave a review if you can. It helps us out. Uh, just put some stars on the on the app. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, iHeartRadio, or wherever else you get your podcasts. That's very social of us. We're all about the socials. I'm feeling less and less social these days, but yes. Now, did you have a BlackBerry? Back when they were a thing? I did not. I didn't have a phone until 2006. I think it was only when I moved to London that I got a phone. So BlackBerry Whoa. was almost dead by that point, according to the, the film that we're watching, right? Um, yeah, I think it was. No, I, I remember seeing them early 2000s. Um, there was one, I had one teammate on a soccer team that I was playing on, and she had one, and... Boy, that was all the buzz. And she was a marketer salesperson. So I assumed that they were just for people who sold things. I had a friend who was a barrister who had a Blackberry. And I can still remember him kind of getting it out. We met for lunch and he got it out. And I kind of me telling him, oh, is, is that one of those blueberries? <laughs> um, <laughs> that was the closest I ever got to one, though. I did have like a, a cheap knockoff uh, Blackberry, which was a little LG mobile phone with a keypad that you could slide out from underneath oh, the phone. Yeah, I yeah. felt extremely slick uh, with that, but it didn't really work and it didn't really do what it was supposed to. Oh, happy days. Yes. So uh, so uh, this week we have watched Blackberry, the film. Who would have thought they yeah. could make a film out of those little tiny keyboards? Um, <laughs> released this year, <laughs> directed by Matt Johnson. So not someone I've heard of. His previous Two films are The Dirties and Operation Avalanche, both of which have utterly passed me by. Mm. I don't know whether you've even counted him before. Never heard of him. Nope. This was a new experience for me. I think he's in the film too, isn't he? He, he is. He's one of the main characters yeah. in the film. Absolutely. Um, the, the film was written by him and his producer, Matthew Miller, mm. also someone with whose career I am yeah. not familiar. It's based on a book, as 50% of movies are. It's based on the, on the book Losing the Signal by Jackie McNeish and Sean Silkoff, which I also have not read. So uh, I've been really heavy on the homework this Whoa, week. Whoa, a book that you have not read in advance of talking <laughs> about the film? <laughs> I know, I've really missed a trick, haven't I? I have not put in the effort this week. Um, to try and make it up to you, shall I tell you the story of Blackberry? Not yet. <laughs> I want to fact. Is that because we're still waiting to get a connection? I want to fact check you. Is that well? You said fifty percent of books are, or fifty percent of films are based on books. Is that true? 
I think that is true. You know, I think 50% of films are based on previously existing properties, mm. be they yeah. books, most commonly, or newspaper articles, yeah. or as we found out the other week, Reddit threads, <laughs> but they're, they're based on, on something. But it's, it's been a pretty even 50-50 wow. split for many, many years oh. between original material and something based on on pre-existing material yeah you'd think i would have heard that at the popcorn counter by now but i don't remember <laughs> well guys i'm getting that statistic from when we were told that at film oh. school so i think you 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 maybe would have learned that at the same time well, as me but cleverly you've forgotten that fact right. because you filled your brain with more interesting and useful yeah. things whereas i've retained that otherwise useless fact for many many years i think i just wasn't listening that day <laughs> Maybe maybe you, like many of the other students in our class, were busy texting during the Ooh, longer lectures. With their Blackberries <laughs> and dumb phones. <laughs> with their dumb phones. Oh, those are the days. Okay, now you can tell me the story. So, uh, the film is set in Ontario, Canada in 1996, uh, where charmingly clueless engineers Doug and Mike uh, Doug played by Matt Johnson writer and director of the film Mike played by Jay Baruchel um, they are of the small Canadian tech startup Research in Motion RIM and they are pitching its proposed new device to investors it's a phone that does email now whoever they speak to nobody wants them uh, until eventually Previously uninterested executive Jim Balsley, who is a no-nonsense business world hard man, he gets fired from his job and he decides he will take R.I.M. on. I'm not sure. Should I call it RIM or R.I.M.? It's Research in Motion. R.I.M. I'm going to stick with R.I.M. Okay. Um, and so he takes the video games playing, movie night watching, tech bro man children of the company, and uh, he transforms them into a proper firm with a proper prototype, uh, which they call the BlackBerry. And incredibly, the BlackBerry quickly becomes a massive business worth billions of dollars. They are set to own the world with the greatest tech product of the age. As long as they can get their phones into the hands of the great and the good and they can solve the technical challenges that threaten to make the telephone network fall over, it's all going great. And then with money, investors, phone companies and poached engineers from Google, they all seem to be unstoppable until 2007 when Steve Jobs announces the iPhone and things for BlackBerry start to fall apart. And that is the basic shape of the story of the film of the phone. The film of the phone. I love that. The film of the phone. The film of the phone. Yeah, 50% of films are based on books, but the others are based on things like, yes, small technical devices, <laughs> which you have now left in your kitchen drawer for many years and not played with. Did, did, you, did you enjoy Blackberry? Um, I did. I didn't enjoy it a whole lot. I mean, I, I thought it was really smartly done, and, and I think it's a good film. It, um, But in terms of... Um, story just it's not super interesting to me i mean it's a there's a tech story um, which i think needs to be told and there's a human story but there's not a whole lot on the human level it didn't really feel like uh i was that engaged with the the characters um so i i recommend it i think it's good i think it's a good watch it almost feels like it i mean i'd love, I'd love to see the documentary just to see something a bit more um fact-based i guess like, i'm on this fact-based kick today i guess i don't know <laughs> You and your facts. Yeah. So um, I, I, 
it's almost too factual. It's like not dramatic enough to be a, a super uh, narrative film, I don't think. Um, and yet, you know, there's, it's probably I think some of the factual things are probably um, played up a little bit to make it more dialogue or more more dramatic. So it just kind of falls in between this this fact and fiction world where I was I felt a little meh. Are you guys using that term? Meh. Meh, meh, it was all M-E-H. Yeah, yeah. M-E-H. So yeah. a, I was oh, a yes. little meh on it. I wrote that down in my notes at one point. I thought, you know, this is a good <laughs> film. It's just not super interesting. I was, I mean, there, I was never tense. I was never, never, never felt that tension. I never felt um, super engaged with it. It just sort of passed by and I liked it. And I, and I have some, some nice things to say about it. If Yeah, yeah. What is that expression? If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. So maybe it's time for me to <laughs> shut up. Did you like the film? I, you know, I, I was thinking, you know, so like sometimes in life, you come across a film that just feels like it's tailor-made for you. Yeah. So this this really was oh, tailor-made good. for me. Yeah. Because it's all, it's, like, it's all about like 90s and noughties tech nerds, yeah. like people who are playing Doom <laughs> and watching Raiders of the Lost Ark and wearing Wolfenstein T-shirts. And, yeah. You know, and people who pay very, very close attention to the words of an Apple presentation that's being live streamed over the internet. I mean, it's, this film is just laser guided for me. Yes. Um, Aren't they watching uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark at one point? The whole crew gets... They are watching Raiders of the Lost Ark, <laughs> having already watched it 20 more times, I think. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. This is this is a film that was made for me. It has found its audience, and its audience is sitting right here. Yeah. Um, I, I, right from the very moment that the film starts, because it starts with this little black and white snippet of yeah. Arthur C. Clarke talking to camera, predicting the future. Yeah. Um, and it's one of those snippets where, you know, he, Arthur C. Clarke may well have said loads of things, but this particular thing he said turns out to be alarmingly accurate. How he talks about how, yeah. you know, in, in the future, you know, people will be connected electronically and you'll be able to do your, your business work from uh, an island in yeah. Tahiti or Sri Lanka or whatever, just as well as you will be able to do it from New York City. Um, and it's, you know, it's remarkable, actually, this alarming uh, alarmingly accurate prediction of the future that he makes. It's you know pretty amazing, and then it goes direct from there to this little montage of you know of all the people that I feel similar to or interested in because it has like clips from two thousand and one and Star Trek and Captain Kirk and Bill Gates and they try and give this little um, montage explanation of what what 1996's vision of the future was and and its vision of the future are all like my personal touchstones i was the kid who wanted a little communicator from star trek and you know who wanted to to um you know have my own version of how from 2001 but though maybe not the version that pushes me out of the airlock um <laughs> so, so i felt really connected to this film yeah. Um, you know, and I like you. I I remember pretty clearly the era in which this film is set. Yeah, you know, it's not historical to me. It feels like a fairly recent memory. Um, so this film was for me. Yeah, and and happily, you know, this film that was made for me pleased me a great yeah. deal, and I really enjoyed it. Actually, I I had a great old time watching this film. I liked it a lot, also, and for a lot of the same reasons. I did feel certain nostalgia. Um, I just, it's its hard for me to explain why I liked it. I mean, I thought, um, I was more impressed with how it was done. I mean, it's obviously a fairly low-budget film. They attract a couple of sort of big names to to make it a bit more familiar and maybe get some money. 
Um, but it's very, because it's a period piece that doesn't have a lot of money, it's very smartly filmed in the sense that most of the shots are quite tight, so they're not revealing the background and, and how non-period it actually is for staging. Um, you can do that if you're, you know, if you don't have enough uh, old-looking cars, then you just... Uh, you use the same three or four cars again and again, and you pack them in <laughs> tightly. Um, so I think it was really well done in that way. Um, so I again, I'm not. I don't want to just to be a Debbie Downer on this. I'm not. I didn't. It's not that I hated this film. Um, I just can't explain too much why I like it, and I, I will definitely um, recommend it. Perhaps not super enthusiastically, but it's one of the better films that's probably out there right now. So. It was good to see. I've got to get you to hold on for just for five seconds because the washing machine has started. I'm going to quickly shut the door. Hold on a second. Super professional again. Better thing. Jimmy might not know this, but I'm going to shut the door too because my wife is talking on the phone loudly. Hold on. That's better. I'm back. Okay, right. Sorry about that. I've been here the whole time. <laughs> um, I, I sort of agree that this has the... If you told me this was a made-for-TV film, yes, I would believe you. Yeah, sure. I'm not sure that sort of thing really exists anymore. There used to be this big thing about you know, made-for-TV films, whereas these days low-budget films are kind of made, I suppose, direct for streaming or something like that. It sort of has that feel. It wasn't, like you say, it wasn't made with very much money, and they yeah. spend the money that they've got wisely. wisely. It doesn't have big-name stars, but it's you know, surprisingly well-crafted for a film that otherwise yeah. snuck up on me. Precisely. That's the thing that, that really struck me. And, and you know, even big-budget films are kind of made for TV now. Ah, in the sense yeah. that very few people are going into the theaters to see them. So with the streaming, it's uh, I think that made-for-TV thing barely makes any sense anymore. It's just an archaic term. Um, shall we ring the spoiler bell? Because there are some things I want to talk about that... Yeah, that that if you were planning to watch the film, I I wouldn't want to spoil for you. I'm going to ring the bell. Is that okay? It, it's probably too late, but go ahead, please. <laughs> I've spoiled it. Already spoiled it. <laughs> um, there's I there's a bunch of kind of very well written scenes. I think in this film, I think you know they've smartly written the script to to do you know a lot of the work without needing to spend much money. Yeah. Um, and they do um, offer my usual. You know, favorite features. There's a lot of visual storytelling. This, you know, dialogue yeah. is often only used where it needs to be. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this great sort of fairly early on scene where Jim, who's the kind of the hard nosed businessman type, he gets fired from his old job at a like a design and construction company, and then and you know you're kind of aware from the way that Martin Donovan, his boss, kind of looks at him that this is probably going to happen, but we don't see the moment where he gets fired. Mm-hmm. Um, and instead, you know, instead of having a long speech about, you know, what happened, um, you know, or seeing the speech where he gets kind of balled out and thrown out of the office or whatever. And instead, um, yeah, the, the film conveys the information. It's really kind of really lovely little way where um, uh, Jim kind of hands over a business card to, to Mike and Doug. Yep. And it's just got his old phone number scribbled out in ballpoint pen. Yeah. You know, and, and that's kind of you know, all the storytelling you, you, that you need for, you know, for that little bit of story. And, and that's that sort of motif of telling the story kind of with quite simple little visual flourishes yeah. you know, appears um, throughout. It's um, I think it's, you know, it's cleverly economically written. It's brilliant. And, that, and it, because the film really talks about phones and how they're changing, 
um, the idea of changing a phone number now is kind of ridiculous, <laughs> right? I mean, you I just guess. have the same phone. So it, it was, I think it's a really, really brilliant touch. There are a couple of things that are like that in this film. So I, I agree with you entirely. Um, and it did make me laugh out loud several times. There's a bunch of funny scenes. I mean, it's filmed very much like The Office mm-hmm. with that kind of sort of mockumentary shaky cam yeah. style. You know, people talking to each other behind glass in an, an office setting. These kind of very long zoomed in shots with close miking. It has that has that kind of feel. It has that sort of timing, that sort of comic heritage. There's a, a scene where Mike and Doug, who are the two um, engineers, they phone up Jim to try and negotiate with him over his offer to to buy into the company. You know, and it's a it's a really simple scene, but um, really funny. It's just you know a bunch of good gags. You know, they ask him, have you seen Star Wars? And he says, no. It's a, it's a scene where, you know, that's just, you know, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a great, funny little gag. Oh, there's a gag about um, how kind of Jim says, I thought you said he had the best engineers in the world. And Doug says, well, we have the best engineers in Canada. Mm-hmm. And without, without wishing to, to downplay the, the, the many hundreds of excellent engineers that I'm sure Canada has produced, it's a funny gag. It's yeah, good. Yeah, it's a bit funny gag. Um, and it even you know, again this this um, this example of when not using dialogue is the right answer. There's a, a few times when Jim is asked a question, and he just doesn't answer it. Mm-hmm. You know, and that is the best answer. The fact that he doesn't answer it and doesn't say anything actually tells you everything you need to know about what the actual answer is, and it moves the story on without needing some clunky dialogue that explains what's going on. It's you know it's just great. Yeah, well the characterization is fantastic, and it's done. In a number of different ways, dress obviously the way uh, the the this, the the artistic design features these engineers. They look like engineers, or how we imagine engineers. Um, the suits, of course, um, it's often done in dialogue or delivery of dialogue in terms of the the awkward nature of Mike as an engineer compared to the 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 forceful tongue of Jim as the salesman. The masks in Jim's offices, first in the in the office where he first works, he's got oh, these, yes. it's bizarre. I, I was completely out of place, disoriented for a moment because um, I think it's a scene where where Mike and Doug are waiting to meet him perhaps. And then you're seeing this office in his first office um, and you see them in front of his office and, and you see, it's this sort of big, I don't know, like tele, telemarketing room or this big sales room. And then all of a sudden you see these all these African masks, I guess, on the wall. Um, and it just seems very out of place. So therefore, Jim feels out of place. And then, but you you definitely get this sort of warrior um, <laughs> quality about him. And it's just told by showing you know what he has on his walls, and it's it's quite frightening. And he's kind of a frightening character. And um, so it's just done. Characterization is done both through appearances and uh, certainly the way they talk and what they actually say. So it's really done on a number of levels, and it's it's very well done. It's, it's a film that has like a really clear theme as well and you know the theme is stitched through pretty much every scene of the film it's you know it's very well um, unified it's a you know it's a film about about caring about what you make or what you do um in like that sort of pretty much first ever scene when they have gone to try and pitch their invention to jim Mm -hmm. you know mike starts the movie by he's kind of dismantling this intercom that jim has on his desk because it's buzzing Mm -hmm. you know and this kind of this central idea of you know, of um, you know, engineers who really care about what they do, yeah. Um, then ends up being you know this recurring theme that informs pretty much every scene in the film. They never let it down. It's always there. It's always present. Yeah. And and they've come up with some great 
uh, dialogue to kind of to cement the theme as well. There's this you know very quotable little exchange, kind of fairly early on in the film, um, where Jim tells the engineers, you know, perfect is the enemy of good, and then the engineers tell him, yes, but good enough is the enemy of humanity. That kind of it's about that drive to make the best yeah. thing, yep. to make the best phone, or to make the best company. You know, to give people the best experience or to have the best product. This, you know, this kind of drive is, you know, sort of, I guess, what has has um, elevated Apple to the the kind of the the number one position that it has now. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's work done by people who think very, very hard about the little details. Again, it's one of those things that elevates cinema as well, isn't it? The devil is in the details, and the very mm-hmm. finest films are the ones where you know every little detail has been considered. You know, nothing has been considered good enough. You know, you've tried to hit the right note every time, uh, and and you know, that's kind of the way to produce you know your best work. Yeah, I think it's a you know, a great film for anybody who would like to to you know do their best work because that's what it's all about. It shows the the contrasting philosophies too. If you need to do your best work, you need time. You have to put time and care into it. And some of these uh, corporate shark types, they don't have time, they don't have care. Um, so you see this wonderful contrast. And very often you see the engineers kind of sitting around doing nothing, or we've got that sort of <laughs> 90s, early 2000s idea that all these uh, tech places have ping pong tables and uh, bar rooms and they show movies and, and have vending machines or whatever that are fun for the employees. Um, that perhaps, you know, makes people more likely to hang around longer, think longer, and actually put more time and, and, and thought into their work. And so you see the two, the two sides of what makes uh, a good product or, or a good corporation, and they are very starkly different, I think. <laughs> and then, they, of course, you get this point where um, at some point they bring in, is it John Purdy, this hard-ass uh, uh, manager type who's going to, you know, reel in and then corral these engineers, these lazy engineers, and put them to work properly. And that's sort of when things uh, start to turn to crap. And one of the characters actually says, don't hire that guy. He will – don't let him near <laughs> the engineers. He will ruin your your department. Uh, it's Michael Ironside, isn't it, who plays that it, guy? It, I didn't recognize him until I saw in the credits that I, mean, I was like, who is that guy? I kind of recommend him. But I think that's a – he's wearing body fat, don't you think? He, I, he, he's, yeah, either he's put on a few pounds, yeah, or he's wearing some kind of suit there because, yeah, I, I cannot remember Michael Ironside being his, in that sort of shape. His sides are no longer made of iron, that's for sure. <laughs> um, uh, quick word about structure insofar as it's a – you know, it's a – um, you know, a straightforward but very clearly structured film, isn't it? It's it, like it doesn't do the thing that I bet would be tempting to do, which is it doesn't travel backwards and forwards through time. It doesn't skip from one point of view to another or whatever. It tells the story yeah. really pretty straight. Yeah. You know, it starts out explaining what the story is about. Jim joins the company. I, I looked at my watch. Jim joins the company at 26 minutes in, yeah. kind of marking the end of the first act. Yep. They have a threatened takeover, you know, pretty much at exactly the midpoint, mm-hmm. about 50 minutes in, which shifts everything up. Um, Steve Jobs announces the iPhone you know, live on stage with yeah. all the engineers watching at one hour 20, yep. which then gives like a 30 minute last act, which is them trying to respond to the iPhone. Yeah. Very conventional structure. And it's one of those films where, you know, that conventional structure, it really works for this kind of story. It doesn't need to do anything fancy and clever. Yeah. You know, they hit the right notes at the right point yep. and it keeps the whole thing feeling fairly tight and, and, uh, enjoyable. Yeah. So it, it trots along. It, it, I was a, you know, enjoyable, speedy experience yeah. for me. It, it works very, very well. And, um, I think 
it's it's one of these films that's very very conscious of what it's doing i think in terms of structure and and i like the fact that it's it's chronological you don't have to worry about plot holes emerging just because you want to tell it in some fascinating way um i think it was great and the the opening and closing shots are brilliant like the there's the arthur c clark thing where he says in the future people are going to commute no not commute but communicate due to the nature of the technology but the one of the early shots is mike's in a taxi i I don't it's not clear who he's with but he's motoring by these horses i mean it really doesn't make any sense from where the, the setting of the film but it makes sense it's the theme stated immediately of this this technology is leaving the past behind um and then the last shot is Mike gets these blackberries from China. He's been warning uh, uh, Purdy's character and uh, and even Jim about you know moving to things to China. The, the quality is going to deteriorate, um, and he's opening up pallet after pallet of these um, blackberries. The new what is it? The new one? I forget the, what the last version of the blackberry was, and they're crap, right? They've got this uh, this problem, and the warehouse is absolutely full of them. And it's just this endless storm of crap that's that's hit him at the end. So it's just it's perfectly bookended in the in the the images, the original theme being stated, and then where he ends up at the end. So I think that was just a great structure. I think the structure is really strong. It's incredibly good soundtrack as well for what is obviously a low budget film. Yeah. I couldn't quite believe how good the soundtrack was. All the all the action happens in Waterloo, Ontario. Yeah. And that final playing out song as the company is is entering its twilight years is Waterloo Sunset. Yeah. Uh, and it, not only is it or you know, the the perfect title for the song to play out, but the tone of the song as well is used so well. I mean it's just astonishing actually. Well the Canadians um, have different laws on the on uh, music rights, I believe. Oh. Sometimes, if you see a Canadian film, you're amazed by how did they get that? How did they get that? And <laughs> Yeah, I think it's a legal issue. It's all about what's a right. So that that explains why I'm going to make all of my future films in Canada. I've decided. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> just just let the soundtrack do the work. Um, uh, one other thing I was going to mention, just this this notion of of um, Chinese manufacturing uh, makes it feel like a very very now story. I don't know whether you've seen in the last few weeks Moog Music, who are one of the, the last kind of big American synthesizer manufacturers no. they've recently had to call in the receivers oh no so they were making all their synthesizers in the usa yeah um and but they've kind of sort of financially struggled because you know, other people have been copying their instruments and just undercutting them on price by manufacturing them in china yeah um and you know it feels like you know this, this film could have been made for exactly that moment it's again it's this story about yep. north american manufacturing um being uh, you know, undercut by uh, cheaper manufacturing abroad. This is a very, very now story. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. It will probably continue to be a now story for the next 10, 20 years. Yeah, it's definitely for the time. This new era of sort of get rich quick via tech. Um, certainly, yeah, and seeing the the quality of the actual products is going down while the bank accounts of those who are most in power are going way up. <laughs> funny that. Yeah, funny that. Uh, so... Um, Pleasant surprise for me, this film. Didn't expect a great deal going in. I'm not sure those making it uh, expected an enormous amount from it. I yeah. didn't think it was originally expected to get a theatrical release as widely, but um, you know, it's done surprisingly well. Well-crafted film, a lot of fun. But despite all that, you know what I'm going to say now, don't you? 
that it's. I am going to drop a now. Now you're going to have to refresh my memory. You, what is a Canadian quarter called? It's got to have some kind of proper name, isn't it? Use your BlackBerry. You can text and call. <laughs> Use the BlackBerry. <laughs> That's it. I'm going to I'm going to electronically email over the wireless internet <laughs> uh, to send my queries to uh, clichesquad.net. Cliche squad. So I've only got I've only written down one cliche this week, and it feels a little bit unfair, which is um, tech nerds with t-shirts and bad hair because I feel like whenever you see a, a tech nerd yeah. on screen you know they will be wearing a video game t-shirt and they will have a bad haircut and yeah. I feel like I've seen this many many times but I'm not confident about how much that is a cliche and how much it's just an observation maybe maybe this really is what a lot of a lot of uh, tech nerds are like I think it's part uh, part um, part cliche and part Reality, yeah. I think it's an observation, <laughs> definitely. Um, it, it's interesting in the film, though, because later on, some of the engineers look more buttoned up. Like, it starts out with a fairly um, ultimate Frisbee-looking, uh, you know, head bandanas <laughs> and the T-shirts, yeah. Maybe some stains on the T-shirts and shorts and all that. Um, eventually, though, the, the, the makeup of the engineering team seems to change a little bit, where these guys are just wearing proper slacks and uh, button-up shirts and... They look a bit more clean cut and less nerdy. Um, so, and I think that's a really subtle piece, um, but I think it's well done in the sense that the Purdy character is bringing them in, and the company's kind of changing to reflect Jim's style a little bit more than Mike and uh, Doug's style, perhaps. So, I, I think it's partly true. It's definitely exaggerated, as it often is. It's a shortcut, right? It's a, it's a characterization shortcut. Yeah, but you could say, well, this is this is this is storytelling through um, uh, through wardrobe. Yeah. So it's you know it's just another form of storytelling, isn't it? Absolutely. I think it's perfectly reasonable. It's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um I have one also, just one. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um busting up a payphone when angry. <laughs> I feel like I've seen this in, and it's not always the payphone, but the payphones seem to take an inordinate amount of the damage. Um yeah, so Jim uh, has a call with Mike where he's angered and he's making the call from a payphone, which is kind of odd given the film is about getting away from telephones and payphones, <laughs> and he just bangs at that thing. He takes the receiver and just keeps busting it, busting it, busting it. It's a great shot because I think it's a continuous shot, and then you see that uh, the top end of the receiver has been broken off entirely. So um, they probably pre-broke the phone so that it would broke just, break just right. Um, but I feel like I've seen that a number of times, and yet in real life I don't think I've ever seen anyone do that, but maybe I'm hanging out with the wrong people. <laughs> Uh, maybe this is one of the reasons why payphones died, actually, because uh, yeah, they're too, <laughs> just easy, to too easy to take your frustrations out <laughs> on. So that would be my cliche. But otherwise, yeah, it's fairly cliche free. It's a really, it's a tight little film and it is very good. Mm, that is just the right word for it. It yeah. is a tight little film. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you know, little with a capital L, it is a small film, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, for sure. Um, and I feel like it's one of those kind of small, not super low budget, but not big budget. One of those sort of you know mid tier little films um, that you see fairly rarely these days. I feel that kind of middle ground has largely disappeared from the industry. Films are either tiny or huge these days, and nothing in between. Yeah, I love the touch of how the BlackBerry was named. That's another thing that was just. It says a lot about this film because they never come right out and say, "Oh, it's called BlackBerry." There are these subtle little setups 
about Mike eating, I don't even, I guess he was eating blackberries. Obviously, he had this stain on his shirt from eating in the taxi on, on, a, on the way to a pitch to Verizon, I think. Um, and it's just another one of those things that's just, it's done perfectly, it's done visually, and it's not on the nose. And I think that kind of sort of sums up the whole film in, in a way. Um, and I guess that's an eponymous film. Is that eponymous, James? It is now. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I will call it an eponymous film. Very yeah, good. absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I will buy that. Okay. I'll buy that. Good. I've got a phone for you if you want to buy something else. <laughs> Stock in my new phone company. I love the other thing is I love the early prototypes of the phones. I think that was really, really cool too to see how, you know, they were hacking up little computers and calculators and pieces of other phones and screens and that was great engineering. And it all it always seemed that it was done under duress. You know, the the they they'd build the first prototype in twenty four hours, technically or allegedly. Um and these guys who've been sitting around just thinking or playing games or having movie night in their office, um, would have to work and they would have to just <laughs> scalp parts from various tech stores, Radio Shack or whatnot, and just put together the wiring to make it at least look like it was operational as a text. And the first, you know, the first prototypes are just so clunky and, and odd. And I think it was great to see that, that development as well. There's just lots of, there's lots of, if the phone itself is a character, there's a lot of development there. Um, we've talked about the characterization. There's that classic moment where Jim sort of becomes Mike a little bit when he has to do a presentation in, in Jim's absence, and he's mm, he's sort of yeah. becoming the person that he never was before, and he does a very bad job of it. And uh, <laughs> It's just, I mean, it's it's a good film. It's just well done. It's well done. I think for me, it was mostly a matter of, you know, it wasn't, I'm the opposite. I guess I'm, I, I would love to go back to living without a phone, and... And I would love there not to be this tech bro culture with no women uh, whatsoever in it. Um, I, yeah. So for me, it was um, it's great because it's it is a something of a period piece, um, but it's all about technology in the future, and it's how you know it's the, the period the periods of human existence seem to be getting like rapid, more and more rapid, and shorter and shorter. Like change is happening so fast. Um, but this definitely reminds us, perhaps intentionally or unintentionally, I don't know, just how underrepresented women are in tech and in corporate structures. There are very few, if any, um, um, uh, characters of color in this film. Yeah. Um, so it's, and it's a cautionary tale in my mind. I mean, you definitely get the the Jim story, but at the end you see that Jim kind of gets off. I mean, he gets into a lot of trouble with the Securities and Exchange Commission for some some dubious activities, um, but he gets off. He's out. He's fishing with his former boss in the end, right? I mean, um, so definitely, it's definitely a cautionary tale. Um, but I think it's 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 very subtly uh, insightful, um, and it is worth seeing. Absolutely. Do you know what this film reminds me of? It makes me think of it's like Oppenheimer's Little Brother. Yeah. It's, it has you know, a lot of that kind of same sort of atmosphere about, yeah, it's all men working on some discovery in yeah. some remote part of the world. Yeah. Um, uh, and, uh, and the consequences thereof. Yeah. Um, and I think that one of the, I think I prefer Blackberry to, to Oppenheimer, I must say. Well, de- definitely, definitely. It's, I mean, it's certainly it's half the length of Oppenheimer. Yeah, absolutely, but, yeah. <laughs> more, more than that, I think it, it, features that thing which is so absent from Oppenheimer, which is you know, the actual business of doing engineering. Yeah. You know, the, all those scenes about yeah, cobbling together a prototype was you know, very absent, I think, from Oppenheimer, where you might meet some people or might see some people talking in a room telling 
each other what it is that they're going to investigate. But the sheer nuts and boltsiness of getting some calculator keys and yeah. pushing them onto an old Game Boy and trying to you know create a, a proper prototype that sort of works with all the wires hanging out the back. Yeah, you know, that's really missing from Oppenheimer, I think. Whereas yeah, definitely, yeah. you know that tangible um, feeling of creating the future with your fingers on a desk in front of you is very present in this film. Yeah. You know, this, this is the making of the modern world. I think, you know, more, more than, than um, Oppenheimer's work, I think, you know, this is covering work that is responsible for the texture of modern life. Yeah. And it does it very well. Yeah. And it's got good guys and bad guys, and they're basically on the same team, and they sort of become each other. It's, I mean, I like this film a lot more after having talked with you about it. I think it's just, uh, <laughs> I, I just appreciate it so much more. Um, and I think it's because it's subtle. I don't, I think one thing, Oppenheimer's for everybody because it's loud, it's uh, flashy. Uh, you don't have to have an attention span to watch it. Um, this film is good because it's uh, everything that Oppenheimer is not, I guess. Yeah, everything. Man, they should put that on the poster, everything that Oppenheimer is not. <laughs> or could you call it Barbie Berry? <laughs> Let's let's have a break, um, and then uh, we will come back and talk about uh, big business uh, a century earlier. Uh, in there will be blood. Right, so. Andres, you know that we're you know we're always trying to expand the the reach of the two real cinema club, and I've got some great uh, great new ideas. This, right, right, listen to this. This is going to be big. Okay, this is going to really appeal to our listeners. It's I've got a new website, all about British playwright Harold Pinter. Yeah, it's all I've got discussions of his plays and his screenplays. I've got reprints of old reviews. I have a look at his acting career, got photos, interviews, credits, really everything for the person who is interested in Harold Pinter. Mm. And what's it called? It's called Pinter Est. Yeah, do you get it? It's a pun. Pinterest.com. Uh, you don't like it? I think I can see a problem. Uh, okay, okay. Look, I have another idea. Okay, right. Get this. It's a website about the largest river in South America. It's not called Amazon.com, is it? How did you guess? Okay, no. Okay, look, here's, here's my other idea. Okay, right. It's a website all about the human face. Right, but get this. It's presented in the form of a book. Okay, no. Stop. Stop right no, no, now. No, no, wait, no. Get the start. Okay, look, I've, I've got one more idea. Okay, look, hear me out. Hear me out. Okay. Here's my other idea. It's a microblogging website. You see, you, you post up your thoughts mm. in just a few characters and you might include links or pictures. It's not Twitter, is it? What? No, no, it's not Twitter. It's nothing like it Twitter. It sounds like Twitter. It's not Twitter. Okay, like <clears throat> the description does sound slightly like Twitter. Okay, so to avoid that comparison, I, I wanted to give it a very different name to Twitter. I was thinking, right, what, what name would make this new website very hard to search for on the internet and make it sound a little bit like a porn site. None of this sounds like a good idea. No, no, it's a great idea. Seri no, it's a great idea. Seriously, it's a great idea. It's genius. Are you ready? I've decided to call it x.com. What do you think? I think that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. Mm -hmm. 
Is that what he's called? Is he calling it X.com? He is calling it X.com. Yeah. So www.x.com. I think it is. Yep. Yeah, exactly. That break was a little longer than normal because I was exploring xxx.com. <laughs> Thanks to our new sponsors. Three, literally three times as better as better than X.com. That's why people spend three times as much time there, I guess. <laughs> um, we also watched There Will Be Blood um, this round uh, from Paul Thomas Anderson, who wrote it and directed it in 2008, I believe. Boy, I didn't write down the date, but I think that's... Uh, yeah, I think two th- 2007 I wrote down, but yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, exactly. Somewhere around those early 2000s. So those were the aughts, I believe, those years from 2000 to 2009, the aughts. Um, James, you've been on a great run of form in terms of pairing films lately. Would you take a moment to tell me why? Do you have any other questions for me, Council? Yeah, good, good question. So we had to pick something to compare with with BlackBerry, um, and we did kind of scratch our heads quite a lot, actually, both of us, about what film would pair up with that one. Um, and I thought, well, you know, these are two films about the way that business success can destroy you. I think, and they're they're sort of two films about the disruptive power of technology, or like or like about how progress comes at a price. Nice. And I, I was also kind of thinking, in a way, these are both films, Blackberry and There Will Be Blood. So they are indirectly about how the latest technology um, can become you know, quickly outdated yeah. after the gains that it's afforded. You know, I, you know, I think we see both sides of that with Blackberry. We kind of see the early days of oil in um, There Will Be Blood. And maybe it kind of implies something about the decline of oil as well in that film, but it's we don't explicitly see peak oil or the end of oil or the damage to the environment that we get from oil. But these are both about technologies which have risen and then fallen and, and you know, cost us a high price. And at the end of the day, I just like Paul Thomas Anderson. I think, I, I think this is, you know, uh, spoilers, I think this is a pretty magnificent achievement. And so, you know, an excuse to revisit it, um, you know, seemed like, uh, you know, a, a, a good opportunity. Yes. I'm going to agree with you that it's an achievement. And that's coming from someone who's not a fan of Paul Thomas Anderson. So, <laughs> uh, but he had $25 million, I've just found out, and um, made a, a pretty impressive film. It looks like Blackberry was made for about $5 million. I'll have to look at that a bit more carefully, but... Um, so there's definitely a disparity in the the budgets of the two films. Um, one thing I'll say is, if you can get Daniel Day Lewis and Paul Dano to do your film, you're probably in pretty good shape. Yes, um, Daniel Day Lewis has carried a couple of films for Paul Thomas Anderson and for a number of people, and I guess they had worked um, together. I think Daniel Day Lewis actually suggested Paul Dano because this is fairly early in his career, and uh, definitely. He, Paul Dano, as we saw last last time around, he can kind of do anything. He's a great character actor. He can really just play a number of different um, roles. Um, they had worked together on The Ballad of Jack and Rose, I think it is, from probably earlier in the 2000s. Oh. When Paul Dano was a pretty young guy. And um, so Daniel Day-Lewis had suggested him to Paul Thomas Anderson and uh, went ahead and hired him. So they worked together again. Um, and I, I think this is one of Thomas Anderson's Best films. I mean, he also has um, the Boogie Nights picture, which I liked very much. Right. Very different films. I will say one thing about Paul Thomas Anderson. He, he 
can make a bunch of different films. He's got some. <laughs> he's got some range. You know, we talk about someone like Wes Anderson of the same uh, age, same generation who doesn't seem to have a lot of range. Um, Paul Thomas yep. Anderson has plenty of range, so I will give him that much. And I'm going to jump into the story if you don't mind, if unless you have something. I else. would love okay, it. Okay. Okay. This is one of the great openings in films in the last 20, 25 years, I'd say. Um, yep, I agree with that. I don't know that there's any dialogue in the first 14 minutes. It sort of starts with uh, Daniel Day-Lewis in a hole digging. The sparks from his pickaxe are just, it's just pure cinema. It's all visual. It's dark to begin with. You get these little sparks of light. Um, we find out that it's 1898. He gets into a sort of a, an accident. He falls into this pit that he's been digging. Um, he's trying to find gold. He's hurt, but that's not going to slow him down. He is Daniel Plainview. He's a prospector and a businessman, um, kind of a snake oil guy, sort of like Jim in our other film. Um, one thing I always wonder about with Paul Thomas Anderson is his musical selections. Uh, in 1990, when, when it turns to 1901, he's a developer. He's become a little bit rich after selling some gold. It's a strange synthesizer music comes in. And it's funny because <laughs> I think uh, he's more known as a video director in some ways. Like he, if you look at his catalog, he's done lots and lots of music videos. Yeah. Um, but I remember in Magnolia when I said I could not bear the soundtrack. It's the Amy Mann soundtrack, but it's too loud at times and it's completely out of place. And um, he irons this out later. I'll talk about the music later on as well. But the original music is kind of strange and it's it's... It's kind of a strange story. Um, Plainview is basically this motivated, motivated man. He designs an oil drill. So we see some of that technology being developed. Um, he finds oil, but he loses a partner in yet another accident. Mm. Um, and he inherits that partner's son, H.W. Plainville, who is going to become a very young business partner for um, Daniel Plainville and presumably would inherit the business. And most of that, what I've just talked about, is done with very little or no dialogue. Um, I, I think not a word is spoken. I yeah. wrote down no... All the parts of the film you've talked about so far, yeah. I don't think there is a single word spoken. Yeah, you might have sort of some like incidental dialogue where they're yeah. yelling at each other as they dig a pit or whatever, but I wrote down no dialogue in 14 minutes. Yep, I wrote exactly the same thing, okay. yes. So it's a, it's, I mean, it's a, great, it's a great film. It's very cinematic, starts very well, and that, you know, that makes a big difference in all the film. Um, I think by 1911, he's expanded his business. He's buying up leases when Paul Dano walks in asking for money um, for information regarding a possibly oil-rich property in Little Boston. And that's, for me, kind of the end of a, of a first act where we've got this new yeah. character who's going to introduce a little bit of insanity to the process. <laughs> um, and maybe if we were to ring a spoiler bell, that's probably around when we would ring it, I guess. Yeah, go, let's ring it, let's ring it. Right, continue, please, into spoiler territory. Well, there are so many accidents in this film that we should have a, a spoiler <laughs> bell or a bell just for the accidents. My God. <laughs> yeah, an alarm Alarms bell. Alarm is what they need. Um, <clears throat> it's interesting. In this film, Daniel Day-Lewis plays a character named Daniel. And <laughs> yes. briefly, Paul Dano plays a character named Paul. And I think we we did a popcorn counter a while back on how writers decide on names of characters. And maybe it's just best to take the name of the actor who you're going to be working with on set so that you're not confusing things. And you can just say, hey, Daniel, hey, Paul. And then those are their names. So his last name, however, is Sunday. And um, 
which kind of is interesting because he has plans to be an evangelical minister. Maybe. Is it Paul or is it Eli? We'll find out. Uh, Plainview well, Mu- yeah, I have something to say about oh, that. Yes. Continue, please. We have lots to say about that. Uh, Plainview moves his operation to Little Boston, claiming he's looking for some um, land where he can hunt quail. He's not looking for oil land. He's looking for quail hunting land. So you can see how um, uh, devious he is. Um, Paul Dano is there, the actor, Slightly different character in Little Boston. He's Eli Sunday, an aspiring evangelical minister. He wants to build a church and uh, sort of set himself up in that uh, dream job with the help of Daniel's oil money. So Daniel starts buying up all this land, and he he starts to shape a community um, funding projects, including the church, with his oil money. I, I liked this scene in comparison to the Oppenheimer scene where just a, a community opens up, starts, establishes itself in the, the west of the United States um, based on some sort of big, big idea or big money. And uh, I think that it's good. Yeah. And it, both films do that pretty well. It's actually one of the better parts of uh, Oppenheimer. But we're not talking about Oppenheimer. We're talking about There Will Be Blood. <laughs> not There Will Be Nuclear Reckoning. Um, <laughs> Eli's really focused on using the money to, uh, to fund his church. Um, and he wants to bless the new well. So they've built this bigger than ever before. Um, oil well, all the rigging above it, and uh, Daniel refuses to let him bless the new well. So this power struggle between the two that really becomes a battle of weirdos. Um, <laughs> they're both con men. Eli's a con man and a showman, and Daniel, being one himself, recognizes him as a con yeah. man and showman. That's kind of the, and one's a, like a capitalist, and one's a, a religious con man, and. Uh, they can't really be in the same place at the same time, even though they are. So it's a great storytelling bit of putting people at odds. I mean, that's the tension in this film that um, Blackberry yeah. might um, lack a little bit. However, maybe that well should have been properly blessed because there's yet another accident featuring fire, explosions, and a fall where H.W., Daniel's sort of um, adopted son, uh, loses his hearing, and it's a real comeuppance moment for uh, Daniel. At this point, Paul Thomas Anderson uses a, one of my favorite pieces of music. It's Arvo Parts Fratra, um, which I've penciled into a number of my scripts, but the bastard stole mm. it from me. He's used it long before I'll ever make a film. So so he gets his... I get my comeuppance, too, for dissing him on his music choices. <laughs> How dare he? Um, at this point, like Eli is Paul. Or Paul is Eli, or they're both Paul Dano, or what the heck is happening? And I always wondered, why don't you ask the Sunday family about Paul? Because Daniel's sort of on to this Eli thing. Um, There's really never any mention of Paul, who has disappeared, and now we're working strictly with Eli. So it's, you know, a situation, they must be twins, or does Eli invent Paul in order to sort of uh, alert someone who can come in and get the money and fund the church and make his career as a... Minister, so I, I'm going to I'm going to interrupt your excellent synopsis here to yeah. to to comment on exactly that because I found that very confusing. Yeah. I um I've seen this film only twice, so not many times, mm-hmm. and uh, did not understand yeah. that Paul and Eli are supposed to be different characters until I read it on the wiki page. Yeah. Um. So I think uh, what actually happened was that originally. Paul Sunday and Eli Sunday were played by different actors. Oh. 
Um, and about two weeks into filming, it was Kel O'Neill was was playing Eli, the evangelical preacher, and he dropped out oh. of the film. I think because he either either he was um, he felt that he was you know overshadowed or couldn't get on with Daniel Day Lewis. Um, and I think Daniel Day Lewis in the interview was suggested that actually just that, that um, Kel didn't get on with um, Paul Thomas Anderson, but for some reason he fell out of the project. Wow! And so Paul Dano. Is it Dano or Dano? I've always said Dano, but maybe it's Dano. Paul Dano, perhaps it's Paul Dano, um, uh, was given like a few days' notice, three or four days' notice to then come in and play Eli. Oh. So originally, uh, Paul Dano, Dano, Dino, was um, only going to play Paul, the brother Paul, who comes in, sells out the family farm, and and then never, never appears again. Very small role. So yeah, it was originally going to be a very small role, and then he, he then he was kind of brought in with very little time to prepare to come and be the evangelist as well. And um, at the very end of the film, spoilers, spoilers, um, when uh, Plainview tells Eli that it was Paul who took all the took five thousand dollars, and you know, and uh, he was the one who originally shopped in the notion of buying the farm. Yeah. He was the one who got the money. Yeah. Um, I, I found that yeah, very confusing yeah. watching the film for the second time around because I just didn't understand, well, wait a second, are they different people? Are they the same people? Who, who, is, who is what? Yeah. I assumed when uh, Plainview goes to the farm pretending to look for quail that uh, Eli introducing himself is all an act yeah. um, to make it appear innocent in front of his the rest of the family. But I don't think it is. This is the one big uh, misstep of the film, yeah. I think. I think this is very poorly explained and leaves you with a bit of confusion, uh, a bit of confusion uh, uh, when it comes to the final reel. So yeah, weird that weird, otherwise extremely well-made film. Absolutely. And I remember it, I mean, for me, it's 15 years of weird now or 16 years of weird now, (laughs) because I remember being very confused when I saw it. And then I like the idea that it's, that Paul and Eli are the same character. Cause I, Mm, because I think it's really interesting that he would go in one character to, to take the money and invite this, um, this sort of um, development on his family's land without them knowing and then sort of disappearing but actually being Eli who wants the money and wants the the presence of people there so that he can become a minister. Which changes the motivation structure entirely, which I thought was Absolutely. fascinating the second time around. So I don't think, yeah, It makes much more sense if Paul and Eli are the same person, but I don't yeah. think they are. Oh. So, yeah, strange. That's a different kind of spoiler, Bill, because that spoils the <laughs> film a little bit for me. Bring that damn thing again. You shouldn't call it the spoiler bell, you should call it the ruin bell. Yeah, I, I have to say something else, though, and this is something I often say in my classroom practically every day. Thankfully, someone has done their homework. You <laughs> you bring some knowledge that I need. So that, that changes things a lot. So that probably changes things for the viewers. I think anyone would be confused by that. Yeah. Um, and the fact that Paul's not even mentioned when they're in um, Little Boston is really odd i think and that's why i thought okay paul was just or eli was just pretending to be someone else so that he could get some money and then sort of develop his church without um the assistance of his family or without doing any work himself um either way paul dano is amazing as eli it's amazing it's <laughs> incredible for me to think that he wasn't prepared to play that part because one that's the bigger part 
Um, it's really the antagonist, yeah. or are they both antagonists? I mean, it's and it's very nuanced, and I think he really nails it because he gets the con man elements in there as well as um, the the earnestness and the, ze- the zealotry of the of the minister. Um, but he's an ass, yeah, and absolutely. he calls his father lazy and stupid. And then Daniel's brother Henry arrives. So there's this other element of there will be blood. There's a family element. Obviously, you know that there's going to be violence and there's going to be an unhappy end, but um, family. That kind of blood also gets involved, which is really interesting. Henry's brother, or Daniel's brother's Henry, alleged brother. He's suspicious, um, mm. um, and he wants to know what, what Henry's intentions really are. Is he just coming to live off his um, wealthy brother? They're long estranged. Um, and uh, But Henry comes on board. He sort of doesn't really know that much about the oil business, but he definitely helps Daniel, and Daniel helps, uh, sort of trusts him inherently because he thinks it's his brother. Um H.W. kind of is on to something. He's deaf at this point, um, and he's maybe spiteful. He ends up burning down the house as if he's trying to kill Henry or kill Daniel or kill both of them or just end it all. So Daniel ends up shipping H.W. Uh, off to a boarding school for the deaf in San Francisco. And then, boy, the greed starts to surface for real. Um, he mm. Daniel pisses off some rich uh, like railroad men who want to buy up his land and, and start shipping his oil. Whereas um, uh, Daniel's sort of increasingly isolating himself and, and relying on Henry, the brother, finds out that Henry's an interloper. Um, uh-oh, this is biblical. He just ends up killing who is not his brother, but who previously he thought was his brother. Yeah. And then for that, he needs uh, salvation. Brandy, this man who's been sort of trying to get Daniel to, to buy his land, or at least to see him, wants to exchange his land, which is oil-rich, um, for um, Daniel's salvation. And, of course, it's going to happen in Eli's church. Um, and Daniel will do it. He'll sort of convert and join the church yeah. for oil. Um, so Eli, it's a nice moment because the tables are constantly turning in this film. Now Eli gets power over Daniel and can hit him in the name of the Lord uh, <laughs> years after Daniel had hit him and beat him up um, in the name of oil before. Um, H.W. returns super mad at Daniel, um, and Daniel's focused on this massive project, building a pipeline. And again, you get to see the technology at play. They're digging the ditches. They're planning the the, the pipeline over the land. They're taking it yeah. from uh, somewhere in the you know, central uh, valley of California to the ocean so that it can be... Uh, put on boats and moved around or whatnot. Um, there's ultimately this big jump in time, which is also a little um, disorientating. It's um, H.W. is obviously suddenly getting married to one of the Sunday girls. I think it's Elizabeth. Um, at this point, Daniel's living in this massive mansion. He's filthy rich uh, to the point where he can fire guns in his own house or something like that and blow <laughs> stuff up. Very, very um, <clears throat> sort of a decadent lifestyle by this point, drinking a lot. H.W. comes and wants to leave him. <clears throat> excuse me, to start his own company. And Daniel can't stand competition even when it comes from his own son, so he blows it. He reveals to H.W. that he is indeed not his son, um, that he was an orphan that he took on, and that relationship is over. H.W. leaves. Daniel is alone, all alone, until Eli comes in. <laughs> uh, and he, because H.W. has married e- Elizabeth... Eli's sister, uh, they are now brothers by marriage. Um, so again, this this sort of blood uh, theme comes through family as well as through oil, I think, and violence. Um, Eli needs money. 
Daniel accuses him of being a false prophet, which I think is really true, um, forces him to say as much and to say that God is superstition. Um, and then it doesn't really end too well for Eli. Imagine a couple <laughs> of guys in a private bowling alley in Daniel's basement and bowling balls and skulls. I guess I wouldn't say anything more than that. So um, <laughs> I think you've said enough. That's it. And then, of course, he says, I'm finished. That's the last line of dialogue, right? I'm finished. Yes. Daniel's there sitting on the the floor of the bowling alley. So that's There Will Be Blood. It's, it's kind of epic. I know that my, my synopsis makes it epic in length, of course. It's, <laughs> it's long, but it's not like overly long. This is a pleasure to watch. It's I think it is a really, really good film. Um, there's some there's some moments that uh, I would critique a little bit, but uh, how about you go first? Well, I I mean I I agree with you. I think this is pretty magnificent. I think it's you know a, a fairly amazing film. It is long and it's so easy to watch. And it's you know I think sixty percent of that is because of this towering, authentic performance yeah. by Daniel Day Lewis. Yeah. You know. I think if he wasn't in the film, the film would be so greatly diminished. He's incredible. Yeah. He is so magnetic. Yeah. Um, you know, just an astonishing screen presence. Yeah. Um, amazing. Anyway, it's, yeah, it feels kind of regrettable to me that he has not done more work in his career. I guess he has kind of retired now, hasn't he? Um, yeah. Well, he keeps saying that. He's one of these guys who retires and then unretires a little bit. But I think was The Phantom Thread his last film, which is another Paul I Thomas. I think it Sanders. may have been. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, I mean, I can understand how maybe if you put your all into every yeah. film, there's only so many times you can do that in your lifetime yeah. before you're just utterly spent. But yeah, he is incredible yep. in this film. Um, you know, it, like you say, it sets out its stall in those first 14 minutes without uttering a word. Um, and it's, it is about so much. I tried to start writing down, well, what is this film about? Which is mm. my, you know, my standard question. And I started writing so many things. Mm. It's about family. It's about pain. It's about success and its price. It is about misanthropy. It's about greed and ambition. I was trying to say it's kind of the theme is sort of that no man is an island, yeah. although Plainview kind of clearly is an island and remains an island uh, throughout the film. It's a it's a film that suggests you know that other old um, well known uh, phrase: "Take what you want and pay for it." Mm. Uh, which is exactly what yeah. you know, Daniel Plainview does. It, it encompasses so much. It is so rich, um, so nuanced. Um, I think up until that final bowling alley scene, yeah. when, which I think is the moment when Paul Thomas Anderson kind of loses control of yeah. the tone of the film. Yeah. And you know, at the end of the film, there's this kind of this weird slapstick chase around the bowling alley. Yeah. You know, and this it's kind of, you know, it's almost comical running away. I mean, it's kind of a bit mad. Uh, so it's a very peculiar final scene. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think it has some power and it certainly works as a final scene. And, you know, that final line is a real, you know, great kiss off. Yeah. But it's funny that a film where there has been so much intensity and so much control sort of slightly loses track of what it's doing yeah. in the last 10 minutes. Yeah. But now I enjoy the journey to those last two minutes so much that I'm kind of prepared to forgive it almost anything. Yeah, I think that's and that's my biggest my biggest critique, I guess, is that um, the ending, <laughs> which is so hard. But I think for me, it's that we've we've been led along pretty well. We get these um, title cards telling us what year we're in, um, but we go pretty rapidly from. 
H.W. being 10 or 11 years old, I don't know, which is, and he seems 10 or 11 for too long, <laughs> um, because years have passed and he doesn't seem to grow. And, and then all of a sudden he's, um, is that the spoiler bill? Again? I've spoiled it. <laughs> Darn it, sorry. If you hold on for a second, I'm going to open the door <laughs> to the spoilers back in a second. Don't tell James, but I'm going to open my door too because um, it's quiet here now. I need, I need to get a less obtrusive doorbell, I think. Right. Sorry. We have no, we have, we have no doorbell. So don't. Uh, well, I, that I, is the future. Yeah, absolutely. Well, no, I would say stick with what you have because I had a pair of Adidas Sambas that I bought online a couple of weeks ago, stolen. No. Yeah, because the, the the FedEx person just left it right against the door, and he came at seven oh. seven thirty at night or something like that. He may have tried to ring or knock, but um, just looks like a shoebox, and someone just walked by and said, "Oh, those are my shoes now." <laughs> And I haven't had without even trying them on or checking the size. That's terrible. I know. I've never. I've never. I haven't had a pair of sambas in twenty years. So I was really excited, and then they were stolen. Uh, it's kind of a comeuppance. It's sort of what this film is about. Is uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe I deserve to have my shoes stolen. Um, so H W. No, no, you didn't. You didn't. You didn't. H W goes from being like ten or twelve. All of a sudden, he's married. So you, you just you miss a lot of development, which I think might have set up the final scene a little bit better. Um, so I think we're, we're sort of led to believe that all of that stuff happens in a very short time at the mansion. So HW comes, they sort of have this breakup moment and then it almost seems like Eli's there the next day. Um, so it's funny because you don't see a lot of development of the characters or their lives or you don't, you don't know what's happened in those ensuing years. Um, and then all of a sudden a whole lot happens at once and it's, it's just, yeah. it's just, it, it jogged me a little bit and it was just disruptive, I think, in a way that it'd be a little bit more interesting to see like how HW and Daniel interacted as adults and maybe that would have um, amped up the drama a little bit when they sort of break up. Um, Eli, you don't see on screen for a long time, I don't think, um, by the time we get back to that visitation in the bowling alley. Mm. Um, so I think that it just it, for something that's sort of sort of so painstakingly delivered as a story for you know the first two hours and twenty minutes or something like that, I think you're right. It does sort of unravel at the end, and that's always a it's a tough thing for a film because if you've been so good for so long and then all of a sudden you just don't nail the ending, it makes a big difference. And now with this new information about the Eli Paul thing, um, that changes my mind again. So, uh, <laughs> but I mean I I. Again, you you definitely nailed it by saying, uh, you know, if you have Daniel Day-Lewis, you have a chance to make a great film. In fact, it's you're probably not going to make a bad film. He's so watchable, even if you don't like his characters. I mean, he plays bad news guys very well, and he's just yeah. committed to roles. And um, again, striking that Paul Dano didn't know he was going to be playing that part until they start shooting, because he's, he's fantastic as well. Um, and then I just love the, for me, the, Biggest theme is this change of religion from Christ to capital worship ah. and what measures these guys are willing to sell their souls for, for money and power. And I thought that was just spot on. So it's it's a great film. As I said before, it's really right there with Boogie Nights for my favorites. They're totally different films. And he's showing some tremendous range. I remember thinking that in the theater um, in 2007 or eight. This is the same guy who made Boogie Nights because it's just, <laughs> it's different. It's different. And uh, I loved it. I really thought it was very, very good. I mean, you know, tremendous attention to detail. Tre you know, uh, just the, the kind of the mise en scène. Yeah. 
I don't often say that, so I'm going to indulge myself saying that. Everything in front of the camera is just so beautifully planned out that the scene where there's the big, you know, explosion and the, 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 uh, the oil well is on fire. It's amazingly shot. Yeah. I don't know how they will have done that. I'm guessing there will be some digital digital special effects in that. I'm guessing. I can't imagine that any film would ensure um, Daniel Day-Lewis to, to um, stand quite so close to an enormous yeah. column of burning oil. So I'm sure <laughs> it must be special effects, but it feels Feel very, very real. Very real. And when you're in the middle of the desert like that, I think you can get away with things. It's a, lo- it's a lawless <laughs> land. <Ooh>. So <laughs> um, I did make a note of a few kind of great scenes, yeah. individual scenes that really stood out to me. There's a bunch of scenes uh, that are, Really simple on the surface, uh, very simply written, but they're played for subtext. There's a great scene where um, uh, Daniel has this real estate guy in the town who knows mm. you know, what the land is and who owns what. And they're just going through all the different properties on the map and making a note of what he owns, what he could buy, who the holdouts are, mm-hmm. how much he will need to spend. You know, and all they do is they just talk about names and numbers and point to bits of the map. So on the page, it must be an extremely boring, factual-looking scene. Yeah. But the way that it's played, it says so much about about greed and calculation, yeah. about avarice and business. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just a fantastic scene, um, and you know, all of it is there underneath the surface. And the same, for, like the evangelical scenes, pretty much every scene that Eli is in, Paul Dano, Paul Dano, Dino, Paul. Didino. Dynamic Paul. Dynamic Paul. <laughs> he, plays them so, he plays them so well because my skin just crawls every time he is on screen. Yeah. I find those scenes really, really uncomfortable yeah. and unpleasant to watch, which is you know, absolutely the idea. Yeah. You know, he is fantastic at being so unpleasant to watch. Just incredible. Um, you know, and the way that uh, you know, he, uh, he, uh, he draws the parallels between the two of them. You know, uh, he, um, the preacher's speeches and Daniel's speeches about why the townsfolk should sell him their land or their leases for drilling. Mm. You know, that both of them are promising future wealth. You know, and you know, and so you know, both of them are basically the same, you know, the same character. They're doing the same thing, promising the same stuff. And yet, you know, they are played very differently. And it's not, you know, they are not crassly underlined. You're allowed to draw the parallels yourself. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. you know, it's all done true to the characters. It's just um you know, just very, very well written and filmed drama. It's just fantastic. Yeah, this is a great film. No question about it. I would definitely like you. I think I saw it just twice, once in the theater and then once on my tiny little computer screen. And it holds its own even on a smallish screen. So um, it's definitely, definitely cinema. It's and then those first again those first fourteen minutes are just brilliant. Yes, proper cinema. Yeah, proper cinema. It's about he. I mean, he's Paul Thomas Anderson. Whether you like him or not, I think he does really like to concentrate on proper character-driven drama, isn't it? Yeah. You do feel like he's come up with the characters first, because um, you know that's sort of what strikes me about Licorice Pizza as well. It's you know it's a, it's a film about about characters. Um, you know the same with kind of Boogie Nights. The same with Magnolia. I don't know whether you've seen that. Oh, I have. <laughs> whether you enjoyed it or not it's very much it's you know it's about characters and character moments more than it is about you know scenarios and and um, places yeah this one's very tightly about even though sort of really i think it's really daniel's film 
Um, it features plenty of this Paul Eli thing, um, but it's very focused. I think this is you know the through line here is pretty easy to follow because it's it's about Plainview, it's about his avarice and his desire for both money and power and how he treats other people. Um, so it's a very clear through line um, focused on that one. And it's it's wonderful because is is he a protagonist? Is he an antagonist? You know, it's almost mm. an antagonist film, I guess. I mean, there's there's no one really likable in this film, is there? Is there anybody that you like? Mm. Even H W the boy is a little bit ambi ambiguous or ambivalent, I think. Yeah. No, I don't think I like anyone. No, I don't like any of them either. But you know, I, I love watching them. Exactly, I think they're great characters. <laughs> it's not that I, I don't have to like them. Okay, well, well, let's, let's see if we can draw some some parallels between these two films. We'll we will kind of draw them together. But before that, oh, uh, as always, my favourite game. Let's play. Who am I? Who am I? Is this really your absolute favourite game? Surely there's some other games you enjoy. <laughs> I said, this beats the hell out of Monopoly. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Yes. <laughs> it's a lot, a lot shorter and causes fewer family arguments, yeah. that's for sure. <laughs> I feel like I've already answered the question, who am I? Because, um, you know, I said right at the start of the show, it's, it's, it, we, this week we saw a film about nerds in the 1990s that's and right. the 2000s, and I am all of those guys. Yeah. You know, I, I, will, I will confess, I am not a genius-level engineer, Um but, you know, I love the films those guys love. Yeah. I played the games those guys played. <laughs> I wore the T-shirts that those guys were wearing. You know, I am Doug and Mike from the film Blackbury. Oh. That is me, I'm afraid. I've found myself. Oh, that's great. And I need a haircut. Who, who, are, who are you this week? <laughs> I'm probably Doug, but for different reasons. I think I'm more interested in movie night than working. <laughs> and um, I think uh, in my heart, I feel like I'm a man of the people who gets pushed out of the the job or the power roles, but I'm hoping I end up filthy rich the way he does. <laughs> so yes. I want to be Doug, but I'm not, I don't have the engineering skills. But, yeah. Do, do you need engineering or do you just need, do you need sweatbands? You need, and, yeah. You uh, need to know how to throw a Frisbee, <laughs> wear the headband. It's really hard to wear those headbands. Yeah. That's where the real skill is. Yeah. So yeah, I guess we're, we're, we're one and the same. We're both like, we're one of the Doug. same this week. Yeah. We, we have found our home. Yeah. Right. Okay. Let's let's. Uh, I'll play the jingle. Okay. We'll, we can try and bring these two films <laughs> together. Then. So I'll tell you what I wrote in my notes, yeah. which is uh, both films are the same shape. I've written oh. hard work yeah. leads to a breakthrough which leads to success and wealth, which leads to tragedy. Oh. Yeah, and that's, yeah. that's kind of both these films, isn't it? Kind of, yeah, yeah. I think. I think so, yep. So the structure is so much tighter in uh, Blackberry, I think, but um, yeah. but the shape is the same, yeah. And I, I love, all, the other thing I wrote down here is that both films suggest you can't make an omelette without breaking eggs, mm. um, or you can't succeed in business without duplicity. Yeah, they, they kind of, they both suggest, you know what, you have to kind of cheat and lie and manipulate yeah. if you want to win. Yep. Uh, but... All that lying and manipulation does come, you know, at a great cost. You 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 are kind of expected if you want to succeed to pay the price, which is your humanity. Yes, good stuff. I think both films really have come up in moments um, where you definitely pay 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 the price. Um, actions have consequences in both of these films. Um, I think to a certain extent, they're both about 
salesmanship. Um, ah. And what I wrote down was preaching for profit. Oh, yeah. They're, they're pitching a lot in uh, Blackberry. Um, there's the, pre- pre- you know, Eli's preaching uh, for profit as is uh, Plainview. They both have, they're both doing that. They're both selling stuff. Um, and I think in both films, to a certain extent, it's the, you know, the people who suffer the, the, the avarice of these guys where it ultimately it'll be the people who either lose their lives working for them or lose their money working for them or investing in them. So um, for me, that was this, the central thing is just about these characters who try to convince other people um, of what they need, whether it's Christ, whether it's capitalism, whether it's oil, where it's um, just money or devices, technology. So I, I think they're they're similar in that way. They're a good pairing. Again, as I said, you're in a run of good form. <laughs> it's, it's about to fall over at some point. For me personally, these are also two films that I like much better after having seen one of them twice and after having discussed it more with you. I mean, I think these are both two films that are very subtly great, hmm. which is pleasant. It's just pleasant. You know, like you, when you go to Oppenheimer, you're told, this is a great film. This is going to be <laughs> yeah, a great in film. In capitals, in bold, yeah, yes. We spent a lot of money on this. You're going to like this film. <laughs> and everyone's going to say what a great film it is. Um, whereas these films are very, very good, maybe great. And uh, you see that as a, as a you know, like a watching with a critical eye. Um, that's how you see that it's great, which I think uh, means a lot more. Mm. Um, the other thing is, I like they 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 both feel kind of timely to me, oh, especially like you now Jeff. this month. And so the news is like currently full of two men who have seen great success in business, yeah. and now they're you know, kind of paying the price for that success, yeah. or kind of paying the price for the methods that they used to get that success. What one of the people I'm thinking of is currently in court. Yep having to explain how they lied about the value of their property yep. for their own gain. Absolutely. You know, it feels like you know, th- 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 these are stories that have kind of been ripped from the headlines and then retold in a different era and a different age. Yeah. But they still feel very now, I think. Yeah, they are. Because the themes are now, and the themes are masculine. These two films are man films. Ah, uh, yeah. Which is good. I think <laughs> it's they, white, white men films. Yeah, they? yeah. Yes. And they, they <laughs> expose, the, they expose the, uh, some of the inclinations of these men. Um, which I think is important to have revealed more and more. But I'm, I think I'm becoming more sensitive to just how few female characters there are in some films and how, how yeah. little involvement in terms of producing them and the representation on screen. screen. So um, these are man films. It wants to go to a tech bro film, which is also very, you know, a, a very current theme, I think. And the other one is just sort of an old school robber baron uh, masculinity film. Um, so I think they have that in common as well, for sure. Yeah, but they're both kind of man films, but none of the men are heroic. Are yeah, they? yeah, good is it? I think that, that's good to see on screen sometimes. Yeah, for sure. Uh, okay, well, um, from a couple of anti-heroes, um, let's, let's very quickly figure out what else uh, has been playing at this theatre. I always go first at this. I'm going to force you to go first this time, Main, mainly because I haven't seen any other films this week. So oh. I'm going to, I've had something else at my theatre this week. So what, what have you seen? I've seen two. You can borrow one of mine if you'd like. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, it's like stealing someone's homework on the bus into a school, isn't it? Speaking of uh, pronunci- pronunciations or mispronunciations, <laughs> we can't seem to get Dan or Dano or Dynamo. Um, I'm going to mispronounce 
no, I'm going to try to pronounce correctly the name of this cinema club here in Portland. I thought it was Kinonic. It he pronounced it Kinonic the other night. I was oh. I was finally early enough to actually hear him uh, introduce the <laughs> film, which I've not been yet. So it's Kinonic with K's. Kinonic. Yeah, K's at the beginning, K at the end. It's almost one of those palindrome things, but it's not Kinonic. That would be a great word to have in Scrabble, wouldn't it? Palindrome. Kinonic. Yeah, because those K's are worth something, aren't they? Yeah. I went back and appropriately themed um, night for Halloween coming up. Um, I saw Bride of Frankenstein, 1938. Oh! Which is a James Whale film from way back when. Um, I wrote down 38. It might be 35. I I forget. Um, Amazing. Amazing film. Um, In terms of just some of the special effects, which they probably wouldn't be called very special these days, but... um, Fantastic. Really just a great looking film. Not long at all. I think it was about 80 minutes at most. Mm. Um, maybe 70, 75, 80 minutes. Um, great stuff. And it made me think a lot because since I saw that the first time, I've seen Gods and Monsters. Is that the one with Brendan Fraser and, um, oh God. Not Ian McEwan. Ian McEwan. Film, thank it? you, my God. Ah. Ian McKellen. Um, yeah. That's maybe early 2000s. Oh, Ian McKellen. I yeah. said Ian McEwan, the novelist. Ian McKellen. we got to get out of there. Need... <laughs> I'm even worse at names than you. Bring on the AI. We need some AI to run this podcast. <laughs> Yikes. Um, Ian McKellen's in there with Brendan Fraser. That's before he was the, the new Brendan Fraser, who everyone's raving about. This was old Brendan Fraser, um, which was a great film. I liked that a lot. Gods and Monsters is sort of about uh, James Whale in probably in the 50s or 60s, long after he'd been a hit director in the... 30s and 40s. Um, so I was, it was interesting to watch it with those eyes and thinking about James Whale directing and all that. Um, so I liked that a lot. That was great. Again, 16 millimeter burn marks and the cigarette mm. burns uh, for, to mark the changing of the reels. The things went the whole time in the back. The machines are clicking away. So that was a great experience. That's the way to see these old films, yeah. isn't it? Absolutely. Then on the small screen, I just saw a documentary called The Saint of Second Chances. Um, 2023, it's about a baseball executive named Mike Veck, whose father owned the Chicago White Sox over here, and then he sort of ruined his father's ownership, and he gets a lot of second chances, let's say, um, and ends up having some smaller baseball clubs of his own. But it's about his life and how much he's changed uh, the game of baseball in the United States. Um, and it was surprising. It's incredibly emotional. It's a really wonderful story. So I do... I, I am not a baseball fan. I go see a couple games a year because there's a minor league team right here in my neighborhood. But um, I don't find it an interesting game. But this is all about Mike Vec, who actually d- developed a lot of the fan-friendly elements, the in-between, in, in inning um, entertainments and some of the promotional things. And he's just a great character. And he actually plays his father a little bit in this documentary. And... Mm. It's kind of like... I mean, I would connect it to Paul Thomas Anderson. Sort of like it's It's a documentary that's really based on a character so when they start to tell his life and he tells most of it himself um it really is powerful so saint of second chances and where can people see that i don't know my wife booted it up on one of the platforms right. okay we definitely well, one of those many many platforms yeah, it's on a, a platform it's somewhere. on a platform a lot of stuff's getting platformed <laughs> these days <laughs> so what are you gonna say if you didn't see anything in so, the theater so we we didn't go to the theater. We did go. We went. Well, we kind of, sort of went to a kind of theater type experience. We went to see uh, Frameless yesterday, which is oh. a it's a gallery uh, just by Marble Arch in London. 
opened up not very long ago. Um, but it's a kind of art gallery insofar as they have 40 or 50 paintings, but they don't have the originals. They have digitally manipulated animated versions of very well-known paintings. Oh. So there's you know paintings by Hieronymus Bosch yeah. or by Monet or Delacroix or um, Mondrian. And they have four rooms where these paintings have been digitally projected onto the walls, onto the ceiling, onto the floor, onto screens you know, all around you. But they've been kind of animated and deconstructed. Yeah. Uh, and so for the uh, for the impressionist room, they've individually separate out every single brush stroke. And so for each picture, the brush strokes just start out on the floor oh. and kind of children can run around the room and you can kick the brush strokes around. And eventually they sweep up off the floor, up onto the walls oh, wow. where they form piece by piece into the painting. Oh. And then they collapse down again and you get a whole bunch of different brush strokes and they form a new, another painting. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, or you know the Mondrian paintings have kind of been sort of animated and they move around and then they play sort of you know appropriate music. Um, and it's one of those things which sounds a little bit corny and a little bit crass from a distance, mm -hmm. but when you're there in the room and they're playing the music and they're projecting these images, absolutely enormous. It's just captivating. Mm. It's great fun. Yeah. Um, the thing that I kept thinking about was um, that I bet the, the the painters of these pictures if they had had the opportunity to come to 2023 and see their paintings digitally deconstructed and reconstructed yeah. and then projected enormous, uh, in enormous size across you know, the walls of this gallery, yeah. they would have thought this was absolutely mind-blowing and amazing. Yeah. I'm sure that Monet probably would have thought this was the most amazing thing ever. Not only that people were still looking at their paintings yeah. more than a century on, but they'd found a new way to look at them and to, to, to break them apart and reform yeah. them, literally using light. I mean, you know, we are painting with light by using the digital projectors to, to put them on the wall. Um, so that was actually you know, more fun than I thought it would be. Yeah. Uh, so that is the closest I've got to the cinema uh, this week. Yeah. Maybe next week we'll do a bit better. I think sometimes you've got to get away from cinema to get re-inspired or get away from one art form to, to reconnect with it. So for ah, me, yeah. that happens all the time. Like I can, I can get cinematic ideas by listening to a concert or I had a similar moment at the museum last week where I was just watching a lecture and he was showing some slides and all of a sudden this whole entire story came to me. So I, <laughs> I think it's important to have those uh, other artsy experiences in order to come back and reconnect with your own chosen art form. Uh, stimulate those other bits of your brain. Yep, absolutely. Right, next week then, yeah. uh, well, we're both going to the theatre for a very long yes. time. Uh, for next time around, we are going to watch uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, uh, the new Martin Scorsese picture, which is over three hours, I think. Yes. Oof. No intermission. <laughs> I don't think. So, yes. Yeah, absolutely. You were telling me, don't drink before you no. go. Don't drink anything. No, <laughs> don't. And we are comparing it to... Once Upon a Time in the West, Sergio Leone. Mm. It's a spaghetti-ish. It's a pasta western, maybe. <laughs> pasta light. It's a gluten-free pasta, pasta <laughs> adventure. Um, of would have paired well, I suppose, with uh, there will be blood in some ways. Um, American West uh, and exploitation of the land and resources of the American West. Right. Okay. Well, it's funny how these themes emerge, don't they? Sometimes mm. the themes are teachers. Sometimes the themes are donkeys. Yeah. This time around, the themes is exploitation of the American <laughs> West. It's these, these, these ideas naturally percolate to the top. So, um, well, 
two long films next time. Yeah. Uh, so we need longer time, right? We need an extra week or two. <laughs> it's gonna, yes. So it's going to. So we're going to have a double popcorn counter, two popcorn counters, and then we'll be back in three weeks with the new Scorsese. Uh, thanks for joining us this week. Please join us next time. Until then, don't drink. No, drink nothing. <laughs> we'll see you next time. <laughs> Goodbye. Oh, people are going to be dehydrated in the theaters. <laughs> there are going to be emergency calls for ambulances. Oh, and it will all be our fault.